You're invited to join Anna and Sam at our new regional event, the Food and Faith Gathering. A collaboration between the Food and Faith podcast and the Keep and Till. On November 9th, 2019 at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, you'll join congregations, practitioners, dreamers, and advocates as we discuss issues around food, ecology, community, and social justice. Head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org to register. Tickets are $25 each, which include breakfast and lunch. We'll be joined by Heber Brown, Karen Mann, Dave Baldwin, and Sam as speakers, along with a trip to the Keep and Tell Farm for lunch and for worship. And if you want to be a founding member of the Patreon supporters team for the pod by committing to give $5 a month, you can attend the gathering for free. So head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather to register. That's foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather. We'll see you on November 9th at McDaniel College at the Food and Faith Gathering. Hello, Food and Faith podcast community. It's Anna here. We are excited to share with you an old episode today from our friend Karen Mann. We're sharing this because Karen is one of our speakers at the Food and Faith Gathering in Maryland this next weekend, and we wanted to bring you in on the conversation and remind you of some of the things that she has to offer with her stories. We would love to have you join us if you're in the Maryland area. There are still tickets left, and you can come along. And if not, look forward to hearing more from Karen in the future as we will publish and share the talks from the Food and Faith Gathering. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden. All right. Hello, Food and Faith Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for taking some time with us in the middle of winter. As we anticipate the polar vortex, we thought that it might be a good idea to spend some time thinking about some warmer things, um, particularly um, having a conversation um, with one of my favorite pastors in the United Church of Christ. Um, and we share a passion for livestock, and so it's our pleasure to welcome Karen Mann uh, to the interview today. Karen, it's good to have you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be with y'all. Karen is a pastor in the United Church of Christ um, and has a background in hospital chaplaincy before she decided one day that following uh, her passion for food and for farming uh, would be the way she wanted to go. And so she served a little while as a uh, market manager for a network of farms that were doing work with refugees. And she's now settled on her own farm in central Virginia, down near the Charlottesville area, um, called Hearts and Bones Hollow, um, with her partner and her two children. Together they raise goats, chickens, pigs, and I'm told one dairy cow, and produce a variety of products uh, for market. And so she is also uh, knee-deep in starting a dinner church, which is one of our favorite things in the world. And so we look forward to chatting with you a little bit about that as well. So Karen, uh, thanks so much for uh, being here. Um, so we always begin by asking, just tell us a little bit about your geography, um, where you're at, maybe where you came from. Um, who are your people? Who, uh, what part of creation are you uh, spending your most time in? So tell us a little bit about your geography. Sure. Sure. Uh, that's always an interesting question for me because uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps my whole childhood. By the time I was 11, I had lived in 11 different houses. 
So uh, in some ways, all of the US is my geography. Um, however, uh, my grandparents, my mom's parents, lived in the same house in Charlottesville, Virginia, from the time they got married until each of them died in that same house. Um, and so Charlottesville was always where we came back to. Um, and the land, part of the land that uh, my family and I live on now belonged to my grandfather. He had purchased it sometime in the early 80s um, and was, he and were building a cabin that they hoped to retire to someday on that land. Um, and they had a huge garden that they kept down there and they would come every weekend and work cabin, work on the land, um, but uh, alas, they never got the cabin finished before health issues and uh, getting to live out their dream of retiring there. Um, and when my grandfather, he was the second one to go, when he finally passed, I asked my mom if I could have that piece of land because I had so many memories of when we would visit Charlottesville of uh, going, we called it going down to the country with them on the weekends. and. Uh, I have some neat pictures of harvesting potatoes with my grandfather on the land there, and he would cut firewood from the property, and we'd help with stacking and moving it, and um, just so many happy memories of spending time with my grandparents on that piece of land. So when when he passed, I asked my mom if please I could have that property, and nobody else in the family wanted it, so it came to me, um, and we were able to find a. Uh, property that is exactly adjacent to his property that actually had a little bus on it for sale when we were ready to move up here. So we have that property we bought and the property that was my grandparents. So that's uh, where we are now. Um, and that's outside of Charlottesville, uh, Central Virginia. I come from. So I'm here. I'm from here and I'm not from here both at the same time. That's a wonderful combination. I think it's something that so many of us can resonate with is that um, connection to place over longevity of it and also the transient nature of things. Um, so I would love to, to hear just a little bit more about where you are now and your farm right now. Like, you know, where are you sitting on this interview and what's outside your doors? What is the land like there? Um, tell us a little bit more about the creatures that you're, you're working with. <laughs> Sure. So um, it's an interesting property that we live on. Uh, we bought was lost maybe 20 or so years ago. Uh, we bought it four years ago um, and was then replanted loblolly pine. So we just sit on, the house sits on 10 acres of really tall, closely planted pine trees. Uh, so not a lot that we can do with that um, since we're not interested in logging. Um, but then my grandfather's property um, was all hardwoods. So the other half of our property is all hardwoods, uh, plus the little cabin and garden area that he has. Um, when we moved here, I knew I wanted to farm, but we probably picked the worst farming property <laughs> that we could have picked. So um, the only five acres, there's only slightly less than one acre that's not covered in trees, either pine or hardwoods. Um, and that one was left bare when they logged the pine property. 
um, and just the topsoil had completely eroded away. So it's just bare clay. There wasn't even weeds growing there when we moved in, just a really abused section of the property. Uh, but that was the only place that had sunshine. So that was my choice for starting a garden. Um, and so I feel like for the last three years, my primary crop has been topsoil. Um, and I've been really working on adding compost and flowers and uh, doing everything that I can to rejuvenate that, that one acre bit of land and the rest of the property too, a lot of focus on that one clear acre. Um, and it was really important to me when we moved here that I be, um, I guess you want, I guess I want to say uh, attentive to what the land could support um, and not impose my will on the land. So I didn't do anything for the first year that we were here, except spend a lot of time uh, going out in all kinds of weather at all different times of the day so that the land could tell me what it wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was important to me that we not do logging here and clear more acreage just to make room for crops. So instead, taking time to figure out, okay, what could support us here with the tree cover that we have? And that's the primary reason that I chose pigs as our primary livestock, because they can be raised in the woods. We also do mushrooms, which are good in the woods. And um, as we, we do occasionally do some thinning of the trees, and we do, as we do that, we're able to put those into the mushroom production. Um, but just wanting the land to tell me what it could support versus the other way around. Now I'm curious because I've heard a lot of people talk about listening to the land. Um, mm -hmm. What does that sound like? Like, what did you see? <laughs> what did it, because it, there's a lot of folks yeah. who want to take that tax, but often don't know what to look for, don't know what to listen for. Um, I'm just curious in your experience, what, what the land said back to you. So I, I, for me, it was really important to be out there in all sorts of weather um, because rain and the water moves across the property shows you a lot about the property, right? So I was able to spend time in that one acre that was clear and see these are the spots that are always wet. These are the parts that are never wet, no matter how much it rains, right? These are the ways that the water runs down the contours of the land. These are what the contours of the land are. All those informed how I decided to lay out our garden area, which is taking up about half right now of that one acre. Um, and uh, another important tree cover, even that one acre, there are places of, there are microclimates in that one acre because the pines are so tall on the south side that at this point in winter, even though one acre is clear, only about two thirds of that acre actually get any sun at this time of year. So it's important to know where the shadows fall, where the wind primarily comes from, I think is something else that you listen for. And none of, I mean, you can kind of do that stuff just by, uh, taking a quick walk around the property, but some of that you're never going to know until you spend time with it. Notice it in all kinds of sense. Um, like if I just went out in the summer, I would think the whole pro that whole acre was 
completely sunny all the time, but right now it's not. <laughs> um, and it really makes a huge difference depending on what you're growing. So, yeah. I'm struck. I heard recently about um, how Thoreau, when he was, you know, writing around Walden Pond, you know, we, we read all these more spiritual works that he has, more contemplative, um, but he also had these journals where he measured the ice and like mm -hmm. took like an inventory of all the flora and fauna in the area and was like very scientific. And I was struck that there's something like looking and seeing where does the water flow? What's the thickness of the ice? Does this, did this plant that was here last year grow here again? That there's something of spiritual practice in that. And I wonder, I know that you are obviously a spiritual person, you're you know, the minister, you're in that, that world of, of faith as well. And I just wondered how, how were those two connected for you? Um, it sounds like on one hand, it was a, a practical thing of going out in all kinds of weather. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. But I'm curious how it was also a contemplative piece for you in, in that listening to the land. I spend a lot of time being out there. And I, I'm a podcast addict, so this is a geeky pleasure for me being with y'all. But um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts while I work, but I try to spend at least an equal amount of time just walking around the property in silence because um, I think you notice things differently. I notice um, not just the practical things, but um, also the way I feel is different when I'm in the woods, um, especially with the animals, but even not with the animals. Um, sometimes I go out there and I sit, so we keep our pigs in the woods um and i'll go out every day i have to go out to the woods and feed the pigs and then i spend a good amount of time just walking through the woods taking in the trees because they're so no matter the season they're just so majestic um to look up and see the trees and to feel the wind moving through them almost feels to me like i can feel the spirit moving through the trees as i'm walking through them and and then to think about what those trees have seen in their lifetime. Um, some of them are very, very old trees. Um, some are very new trees. Uh, but to think about uh, who walked the land before me, not just my grandparents, but who walked it before that. And um, the connection I feel to the people who've gone before me as I walk through those old trees is really powerful. Then, of course, there's the just spending time with my animals. So we have uh, pigs, cows, goats, chickens, dogs, cats, you know, a bunch of things. Um, my absolute favorite thing to do it right now is to spend time with our cow. So we just got her in uh, October, I believe. Um, and she is due to calve in March and we'll begin milking her at that time. Um, but I love to go out right now. I joke that she's going to be the prettiest cow in Fluvanna County because I go out every day and I brush her while she eats the hay that I bring to her. Um, and there is something so calming and uh, connecting about standing with her in that time. Just the feel of her huge body, although she's a small cow, but huge to me compared to our other animals. Um, the warmth that she radiates and the sense of peace that she gives off. Um, I thought goats were my favorite animal, but 
I'm pretty in love with this cow, so cows might be my favorite now. <laughs> oh. Let's have competition. <laughs> yeah, How do you feel about yeah. that, Sam? <laughs> don't tell yeah, them. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things that had me excited about having you on is the conversations uh-huh. you and I have had about livestock. Um, yeah. And at least in United Church of Christ circles, um, you have been my favorite conversation <laughs> livestock without question. And so yeah. one thing I brought up against, or a question that frequently comes to me, and I wonder how you handle it, is uh-huh. the question of raising livestock um, when we're committed to regenerative practices. Because um, sure, sure. some, some people really wrestle with maybe those two things are not compatible, that maybe maybe a fully vegan diet or whatever is, is the best way to save the planet. Um, and I've heard you speak very eloquently about this, so I just want to get it recorded. Um, how yeah, do you think sure. about livestock production in light of regenerative agriculture? I- if we're going to use that word, regenerative, I can't ever say that word, but <laughs> that word you just said, uh, which I like, and someday I'll learn how to say it. But um, I think we can't have regenerative li- uh, agriculture without livestock, really. Um, I was able to go to a, a conference in late October out in New Mexico, and um, it was about regenerative agriculture um, and based on Alan Savory's work. The idea that um, that it is animal impact that helps regenerate the land, um, that moving livestock through a property, particularly a grassland property, but any property, um, that the impact of those animals are what helps to um, stimulate the grass growth in their in the wake of their moving. Um, it helps to stimulate the nutrient cycle and the water cycle by having them go through it. Um, and I think about what if we took all the domestic livestock out of the picture, which is never gonna happen, but say that we did, right? Where would the fertility for our land come from? Mm-hmm. I just, right. I can't imagine where we would get the amount of fertility it would take to produce all the plant crops it would take to feed the population if we didn't have livestock producing that fertility. I just can't see how we can have a regenerative. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and I want to put that against sustainable. Um, it's a word that I've used before and I use sometimes still, but someone pointed out to me that if we're saying sustainable, what are we sustaining? Because right now, the way our agriculture is, if we sustain that, things are only going to get worse because we're already in a bad place. It's sustainable is no longer good enough. We've got to regenerate the land. Um, and I don't know how we do that without the fertility that animals provide. So just from a practical point, uh, I think we've got to have livestock involved. From a moral ethical point, um, I think it is um, a very difficult question to come up with. Is eating meat morally good? Um, And I've read lots of arguments, one side or the other. um, And I think that both have merit. Um, To be transparent about who I am. So I spent 10 years as a vegetarian. And prior to, so that was 10 years from college up until about a year after my daughter was born. And I found that 
I entered the vegetarian diet for all the ethical, moral reasons, animal rights, planet, all of that stuff. Um, but that my body got very sick as a vegetarian. And that's not true for everybody, but it was true for my particular body. Um, and so for reasons of health, I had to start considering whether I would eat meat again. And uh, I really went through a lot of struggles about what it would mean if I were to eat meat again um, and how I would do that. And so the very first meat I ate was a turkey that my partner Bones killed um, and I cooked for Thanksgiving. I mean, talk about high pressure first meat after 10 years of being a vegetarian. Um, that was quite the change for me. And now I raise animals for meat. For a while we raised rabbits and we took care of the butchering and processing ourselves of all the rabbits. Um, we don't raise rabbits right now just because I've got too much on my plate, but we do uh, butcher our chickens when that time comes and we raise pigs for meat. And um, legally I can't butcher them and then sell their meat. So those go to a processing facility, but, um, but we would, and, uh, in a world where that weren't a consideration, I would much prefer to do the butchering myself. Um, so I think that how I come down on it is that in, in some ways it's a practical thing that um, I saw a statistic somewhere that said that only two to 4% of the population is vegetarian and less than 1% sustains a vegetarian diet for their entire lifespan. So uh, while I think eating less meat in general is a, is a good goal, um, I think it's really unrealistic to think that the entire population would switch over to a vegetarian diet. Um, and perhaps unethical, because there are some places where meat is the only quality protein that someone can have access to. Um, so just from a practical standpoint, I think it's far more important to talk about how we raise our meat rather than if it's good or not to raise meat. Right, because meat is going to be raised. So let's change the way that the animals are raised so that they're living a life worth living, even though they're gonna have that one bad day at the mm. end of their life. One of the most impassioned things I ever heard you say was we were gathered together at that event at Wake Forest and uh -huh. you stood up and had the most beautiful language I've ever heard about lard. Um, <laughs> that is one of my favorite things I've ever heard in my life. And you connected it up to the goodness of food. And oh, so yeah. how actually, in so many ways, we need, you know, you were making the argument, maybe we need to consume more lard, not that we need more fats in our diet and all that kind of stuff, but that we need more good food in our lives. And I oh, wonder, absolutely. And yeah. I, I, I would love to hear you just talk a little. I mean, it's the first sermon sure. I ever heard that included lard. So how about <laughs> And Sam's been talking about um, this lard. So I want to hear. I'm serious. It was my favorite. Bring it on. Well, the lard. <laughs> I don't remember what exactly I had, but this is how I feel about lard. So I don't know if this is quite what I said that day, but I'm so um, excited. Yeah. So I, um, I think it's really vitally important that we use as much of the animal whose life is being sacrificed to be on our plate as possible. Um, and that there's a whole lot of good stuff that gets left out of our plates. Like, people love boneless, skinless chicken breasts. And how much of those chickens that are killed in the service of our boneless, skinless chicken breasts 
are left off of our plates and wasted. Um, that to me is sinful, the waste that happens with that. In fact, I'm going to get to lard Sam, I promise. But um, right now I have um, simmering on the stove four chicken backs. Um, we've got friends who uh, raise uh, chickens for a market. And when they process, I often get to go and help them with processing their chickens. And my reward is always chicken backs. So I've had a bunch of chicken backs in my freezer waiting for me to um, turn into soup. And so these four chicken backs are simmering on the stove right now with some scraps of vegetables from the garden and some herbs that are still doing okay, even in this cold weather. And uh, you, I, I think people would be shocked at how much actual meat you can get off of a chicken back that would otherwise, and is often just thrown in the trash. I mean, that, that to me is sinful. So lard, so, you know, fat has been demonized and uh, I'm not a big paleo person. I love bread too much to become paleo, but, um, but, I, but I appreciate how the folks who are paleo have brought uh, fat back into the equation for us because I think fat is really essential to our diets. There's a whole lot of nutrients that we can't uh, process in our bodies without them being carried to us on fat. And lard is just a natural, uh, fat that has been demonized, but is so good. Um, there's two kinds of fat on a pig. There's the back fat, which has a porky flavor to it and is great for throwing in a pot of beans or uh, something else where you want that smoky porky flavor to be on it. But then there's the leaf lard, which is the fat that's around the kidneys. And it is uh, just a pure white thin fat. Um, and when you render it, that just means um, slowly simmering it till it melts and the impurities can be skimmed off. Um, it just becomes this, uh, it's just a delightful fat to work with. So I, I, I promise you, you will believe in heaven when you eat a biscuit that has been made with lard. I mean, it's it just, it is a totally different thing to work with than the inert fat, particular things like Crisco or those hydrogenated fats. It is so different. The taste is different. The feel of it is different. To me, it feels like I am honoring the life of the animal that was killed in order for me to eat when I eat things like the fat. And I, I really feel passionately about honoring those animals' lives. So uh, people ask me all the time how I can uh, raise pigs and then take them to be slaughtered and eat their meat. Uh, often these are meat eaters who ask me this question. And I'm going to go, well, you realize that that bacon you're eating came from a pig. <laughs> I'm just being more honest about it. But I want people to know that every time I take a pig to the butcher, um, I look that animal in the eye and I honor that animal and I pray that their end will come swiftly and as painlessly as possible. Um, and it's important to me that I look them in the eye every time because if I forget the cost that goes into the meat that I eat and sell, then I am participating in something that is sinful, I think. That's powerful. And I think there's something so powerful. I mean, you just really have transformed in my mind, you know, we think about you know, thinking about lard or fat or, or meat in general, that 
it's there's there's something that has a neutral quality to it, right? That we we've put these labels on, you know. Well, I mean, you know, scientifically, Crisco might really truly be bad for our bodies, but that lard maybe is not. There's there's a bigger there's a bigger truth going on there, um, mm -hmm. and I think like bringing that attention to it seems like it changes everything. I don't know. It connects in my mind to why we do sacrament, why we have intention around you know what 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 changes in the bread when we lift it and look at it and look mm -hmm. at look it in the eye and say this is this is my body when we look at each other in the eye how does that change um that experience so i wish i lived closer to you i would like to and maybe that's that's the inspiration <laughs> for all of us to find yeah. to find meat that we know that someone looked that animal in the eye um before it was slaughtered to to honor that cycle so just shifting the conversation a bit and thinking more explicitly about how we think about um, intention and sacrament and the the honoring of these things. I know that you're in the process of starting a dinner church, mm -hmm. and we'd love to hear about how that is and what how that what that arose out of and um, and how that connects to the work that you do with your animals and on your land and, and in and about the land. Sure. So when we moved here, um, had decided that I was going to give up on the ministry thing um, and just be a farmer. Um, and we moved here and it turns out that you can't really give up on the ministry thing. Um, and we, we moved to a very, very rural community. We are about 45 minutes outside of Charlottesville, the next biggest town, uh, is I think there's about 600 folks that live in the next biggest town outside of Charlottesville, the one that's closest to us, Scottsville. Being a church person, I as soon as we got here, I started looking for a church. And truth be told, there wasn't really any option because being UCC, the only UCC church available was in Charlottesville. And so we started going there, but it's a 45 minute drive to that church, which means that my family never wants to go to church with me. Um, it's really windy roads and everybody gets sick stomachs and uh, it's just uh, not a pleasant outing. I go, but I have to go by myself. And uh, over the last four years, occasionally I have tried visiting a church around us to see if there might be something closer, even if it wasn't gonna be UCC. And the truth is that as a gay person uh, married with two kids, living in a rural area there also was just a very conservative area there also just was not a church that would accept our family and not in the way that i wanted us to be accepted um and so i continued to go to the church in charlottesville and was very thankful for that church but still felt like there's got to be more people out here like me not necessarily gay families but just uh, folks who are looking for a more progressive faith community and can't find that thing. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, gosh, I wish there were something like that. Too bad there's not. I'm just going to keep <laughs> going to Charlottesville. Oh, that sounds and, dangerous. <laughs> don't say those words. <laughs> uh, about that time, more people started saying, gosh, Karen, I wish there was a UCC church or a progressive church out here. Maybe you should start one. And I'd say, no, I'm not starting a church. Uh, you can come to this one in Charlottesville that I go to. <laughs> Um, but enough people said that, that finally it was like, hello, <laughs> yeah. you need to take, you can do something about this. Um, 
And so that's sort of where it was born out of um, the longing in myself and the folks that I knew out here for a faith community that would accept my family and one where folks with a more progressive faith could feel welcome in their faith, regardless of whether they were gay or straight couples or whatever. Um, and when I started looking around at, okay, if we're going to start a church out here, how are we going to do it? Uh, one of the things I found being in a rural community is a real sense of isolation. Uh, we moved here, we had lived in a co-housing community prior to living here. So we lived on a 25 acre property with 60 homes and probably 167 people just in that 25 acres to living on 25 acres with just our family. So it was a huge change for us of a very close knit community to now being uh, in a place where I can't see my neighbor's homes from my home. And um, not only just the uh, wide space between our homes, but also in some ways the wide space between us uh, politically and theologically and um, all those ways that we uh, keep each other apart felt really isolating here. And so the thought of having church with people and all going to the same place and sitting side by side and facing forward and not engaging with one another during the service was just so unappealing to me. Um, I was already in an isolating space. I didn't need church to feel more isolating. And so I started looking at different ways that church could happen. Um, I saw a bunch of the, the farm church models and really liked those. It was very appealing to me, but as I talked to the people out here uh, who were interested in progressive church, they were also farmers and they were not interested in being farmers at church after they got off work at their farm. Yeah. So it was really clear quickly that farm church wasn't going to work with us as much as I liked the idea. Yeah. Um, but then looking at farm church, I stumbled into the dinner church model and immediately upon seeing it, I thought, that's it. That is it. Because when I get together with other people of faith, I want to be able to actually engage with them and spend time in conversation, spend time in sharing this food that we've all uh, spent time growing at our own farms. Just the community that could happen around the table was immediately appealing to me. So we've been meeting now. Um, this coming Sunday will be our one year anniversary. Congratulations. Um, thanks. And uh, it has been really wonderful. And just as the community aspect of it was so appealing to me, all the folks who have come have been really moved by the community that happens around the table for us. So, as you look into the future as a pastor, sort of what are some of the, what's sort of the vision you hope to accomplish with the Dinner Church? How do you want the world to be different because you all exist? Yeah, the building of community. Again, I, I'm, I'm just going to stick with that because that to me is what is so important from it. Um, I, I think that not just in rural areas, but I think our whole society right now is experiencing so much isolation, ironically, given how connected we are, right? I'm not the first person to say that. Everybody talks about how uh, 
connected and yet apart we are. And that I see that people are really, really longing for a place where they can be known and loved and welcomed. Um, and not just at church, but I think also through the farm, although officially they're not connected for me, except that I'm in both the church and the farm. Um, I see people who want community somehow. Um, and so I want our church to be known as a place where everyone, everyone, everyone is welcome at the table, right? Nothing should keep you from feeling like you're welcome at our table. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, it's just, it's just all about the community. And we hear the words around community or hear that idea a lot um, in yeah. a variety of different spaces. But to hear it um, in a rural context, in a context where sometimes we can be isolated, I think, yeah. um, is, is a really important idea. Um, that, and there are sometimes some people you know, who, are, who can be isolated, who are seeking that community and your desire to bring that into the spaces that sometimes can be yeah. forgotten in some way, shape, or form, I think is really powerful. One of the things that has been really powerful to me here has been not church, not in an explicitly church language, but um, I was able to connect through um, a conference with a woman who lived just down the road from me. We went to this conference uh, three hours away from here and ended up being paired as roommates and found out that we lived just two miles away from each other, but would never have met if it weren't for that conference. And uh, with her, we started a potluck group. And I, I think the church sort of grew out of this, but that potluck group is now five families. And we gather less in the summer, more often in the winter. We're all farmers. so. Um, but I, I think that potluck group showed to me that just gathering with people around the table, uh, taking the time out of your life, to be with people is so important. And the thing that has always impressed me greatly about that group is that in the three years that we've been doing our potluck group, we have zero pictures from that group because nobody is ever on their phone. And I, I mean that. <laughs> Sometimes we'll get together and we'll lament cool. that there are no pictures of our gatherings, but yeah. it's because I leave my phone in the car. When yeah. we get together. And the same has been true about dinner church. I was trying to plan for our celebration of our one year anniversary this year. And I was like, we have no pictures uh -huh. of church. Because again, I have never seen someone look at their phone during our church time. And to me, that just says people are starved to actually connect with a person. And when we're starved enough to connect with a person, we leave those gadgets somewhere else because we want to be in the company of the people we're with. Um, I think there's something about doing that around a table that makes a difference when there's food involved. But um, just the fact that people can connect on a real level. Um, it's powerful. Well, and maybe you already have, have answered this question I'm about to ask. I, I feel like you've offered an answer to it, but if you have more to say, we'd welcome it. It's we like to just ask our guests what brings you hope. And I know I feel hope in hearing what you just shared, just that opportunity to really connect genuinely with other human beings. Um, it makes me think too, we had a guest, um, Courtney Ellis, a few weeks ago talking about mm -hmm. her book Uncluttered. And part of it was talking about technology and putting technology aside 
And we talked a little bit more about kind of the rules and, you know, putting boundaries around Sabbath. And what strikes me as you're speaking, Karen, is that it wasn't like you, I mean, my sense is you didn't make a rule. You can't bring your phones to potluck or to dinner church or that we don't have them, but that it just was this spontaneous yeah. culture that create was created there with an, an intention to each other. Um, but we do like to wrap up with what brings you hope. So if you have more to share, we'd love sure. to hear that. <laughs> sure. When, when you sent that question to me ahead of time, so the very first thing that popped into my mind was pork chops. Um, so <laughs> I can see that Sam is excited about this. Um, but in addition to my love for lard, um, I think that on our pigs particularly, but uh, maybe it's all homegrown pigs, I don't know. but I think that the pork chop really, really highlights the difference between a conventionally raised hog and the way that we raise our hogs. Um, I think that juiciness and the sweetness in that pork chop tastes like love to me. And perhaps it's because I love these pigs so much and I love the work that I'm doing that it tastes like that to me, except that Anybody who has ever been a skeptic and tried our pork chops from the market comes back to me to tell me that that was an amazing pork chop, the best pork chop that they've ever had. And I get converts by giving people pork chops or selling people pork chops. But so to get back to the community, um, it also then begins to create community with me and our customers in this case at the market so people will try a pork chop skeptic about whether they should really pay nine dollars a pound for pork chops or they should go get the i don't know what is it a dollar or something at the grocery store um ridiculously cheap um but when they come back and they always come back to tell me how much they love the pork chop we then have a relationship and they want to know about the pigs. They want to know about what it's like raising the pigs and they want to try something else. Right. And so we've made a connection across that piece of meat uh, because they feel the love that I've put into those pigs. Um, and the same is true for things like a homegrown tomato. I mean, you can win anybody over to, a, to gardening with a homegrown tomato. Right. But um, I think for skeptics around meat, the, the pork chop, is the way to go. Um, and it, it brings that sense of community too, to have those conversations around the pork chop, so. That's great. I mean, we have that phrase, everything's better with bacon, but now we'll have to extend it. <laughs> <laughs> but the very first pig, I know we gotta go, but the very first pig that we uh, took to the butcher, um, uh, I, when I dropped her off at the butcher, I cried. Um, it was way harder for me to leave her at the butcher and leave her in someone else's hands than it was any time I've ever killed an animal myself for meat, because I feel a deep sense of responsibility to that animal, which includes making sure the end is as quick and painless as possible. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable leaving that in somebody else's hands, but I had to for legal reasons. Um, but when we got the meat back from that pig, I cooked the loin, which is essentially a pork chop just cut differently, right? Um, I cooked the loin and when I took a bite of that loin after it was cooked, I would just wept because it was so 
amazing. Um, and part of that was wrapped up in it being my first. Um, but a lot of it was in I understood the connection and the importance and the sanctity of what was happening there. Yeah, I'm all for loins and chops and lard and all the things. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, it reminds me, um, you know, my son raises hogs too. And every time it's time to sell that animal, you know, that same kind of thing happens. But but there's so much emotion because there's so much love wrapped in wrapped up in the relationship with that animal and that kind of livestock production i think just oozes spirituality it oozes love it oozes the goodness of creation um and so just hearing you talk about it and i hope that our listeners go watch the video like i want them to see like your face and just (laughs) joy that you take out of take out of your livestock Um, it's just it's just been a blast to talk talk to you about all this thank you and just uh, how, how can people connect with you and your farm and your dinner church? And uh, we are full-blown supporters of self-promotion. So <laughs> tell us all, all the ways that folks can follow what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, if you're in Virginia, uh, in central Virginia, you can find me at markets in Scottsville and Charlottesville during the summer months. Um, and uh, if you're in central Virginia and close enough to want to come to our church, we meet the first and third Sundays of the month right now. Um, and uh, probably the best way to get in contact me, with me is through our farm's website. It's uh, heartandboneshollow.com. Um, and I have lately started a little bit of blogging around faith and food and farming, and that's at carrotseedfaith.com. I heard you phrase the question another way, what what do you want folks to take away from this? And the reality is probably most of your listeners aren't going to live in central Virginia and be able to come see me. Uh, But I want you to go and see the local farmer in your area because there's somebody that cares about their animals the same way I do. And you can support that person. And in turn, that supports me. So please go see your local farmer. Thank you so much for that, Karen. It's really inspiring. And I um, look forward to the conversations that our listeners will have based on this episode. And we'd love to have you back on in the future and hear how it all goes. And um, I'm going to be looking for some local pork shops. Yes, please do. (laughs) My mom used to raise pigs and it was always the bacon, but I think I need to find the, find the appreciation for the pork shop. Four minutes per side. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Karen. Thanks so much, Karen. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep Until. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.